the History Channel original podcast. The wedding of Senator John F. Kennedy recalls Newport's one-time social grandeur. Speaker of the House Martin, Congresswoman Edith North Rogers, and former Ambassador and Mrs. Joseph Kennedy, parents of the groom, are among the personalities on hand to make this the top society wedding of the year. For the spectators outside the church, it's a real storybook wedding. A radiant bride, the former Jacqueline Bouvier, and a handsome groom. With a pretty wife and a politically rising star, the future seems bright for the junior senator from Massachusetts. It's the evening of November 22nd, 1963, and five-year-old Caroline Kennedy is in the car. Tonight is an important night. Here's historian Barbara Perry. She was going off on an exciting visit that afternoon. She was going to have her first sleepover at a school friend's house. Caroline is sitting in the back seat. She's looking forward to seeing her friend, not suspecting that her world is about to change forever. And the word came to the Secret Service who were following her and and caring for her um, that the president had been shot. And yet they knew that they wouldn't want to tell this child such a thing. She's told only that her slumber party is canceled. Caroline's car is turned around and redirected to the White House. When she asks why, she doesn't receive an answer. Later that night, her nanny, an Englishwoman named Maud Shaw, is putting Caroline to bed. Her little brother, John Jr., is already asleep. Caroline notices that her nanny is weeping. Caroline reaches up and with her little fingers, wipes a tear from Maud's face. What's wrong, Mrs. Shaw, she asks. Why are you so sad? Maud takes a deep breath. And she said, because um, something very sad has happened. Um, Your father was shot. He was taken to the hospital, but they couldn't make him well. This isn't Caroline's first experience with death. Her infant brother, Patrick, had died just a few months earlier. The little girl has already seen her family grieve and heard them talk of heaven. So Miss Shaw explains as best she can. Patrick, your brother was in heaven and he was all alone. And so your father went to be his friend and be with him. I'm historian Steve Gillen, and this is 24 Hours After, the JFK assassination, Episode 7, The Widow. Over the past six episodes, we've heard the story of the assassination from the perspective of those who lived through it. Today, we return to the experience of Jackie Kennedy, the first lady and the mother of two young children. She lost her her home, her husband, and her job. There was nothing you could say to her to make her feel better, the way things had happened. There was just nothing you could do. We'll follow her as she says goodbye to her husband, comforts her children, and tries to process her own grief and trauma. And she'll confront one big question. How do you plan a funeral worthy of a president? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Eight PM Friday, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. The entire extended Kennedy family is gathered on the seventeenth floor of Bethesda Naval Hospital. Anyone who could catch a train or a plane to get there in time. Bobby, Ethel, John's sister Jean, Jackie's mother and stepfather, the couple's closest friends. The Secret Service has put up a checkpoint outside the suite, clearing people for entry. Bethesda isn't the obvious choice for Jack's autopsy. Walter Reed Army Medical Center is closer to the airport and has more advanced facilities. But Jack is a Navy man, so Jackie wants him to be examined at a naval facility. Behind closed doors with people she loves and trusts, Jackie can finally let her guard down. She cries. She can't stop telling the story. How Jack grabbed at his neck. How she heard the crack of the gunshot and saw him slump forward. How she held his head in her lap as the car raced to the hospital. And some people, you can imagine, found that to be terribly uncomfortable. But her doctor said, let her do it. Let her tell that story and hope that it would help purge it from her. But for years after, Mrs. Kennedy would repeat what had happened, couldn't stop thinking about it, and worse, tormented herself with thinking if she had reacted sooner, she might have saved him. She tells the story each time someone new arrives, again and again. Her sister-in-law, Ethel, observes that it's almost like she's possessed and is exercising a demon. Hours pass with Jackie compulsively telling and retelling the story, each time growing a little more agitated. As Secret Service agent Clint Hill remembers, she's still covered in Jack's blood. She did not want to clean up. She wanted everyone to see what had happened. Her covered in blood, her dress, her legs, everything just caked with blood. Robert Kennedy, her brother-in-law, who also happens to be the attorney general, comes to her with information to say that a suspect has been picked up. He's called Lee Harvey Oswald. He is a communist. And Jackie Kennedy is devastated by that news because she thought that it had been a right-winger in Dallas, which was called the City of Hate at the time and was filled with right-wing people. She thought that her husband had been martyred for the cause of civil rights. And so when she found out it was Lee Harvey Oswald who was being charged and was the key suspect in her husband's murder, she said, Oh, a silly little communist. Jack didn't even have the option of dying for uh, something he truly believed in in the case of civil rights. Her doctor is at her side. Dr. Walsh has been through difficult times with Jackie before. He's the obstetrician who delivered baby Patrick. Fearing that she'll collapse from exhaustion, Walsh injects her with a tranquilizer. But sleep doesn't come. The drug only seems to wind her up even more. Bobby asks for a record player to be delivered. For the girls, he says, to calm their nerves. Like a proper Irish wake. The group waits. First, for the medical team to examine the bullet wounds and to write up a report. 
then for the morticians to piece together JFK's shattered skull. Finally, at 12.30 a.m., 12 hours after Kennedy was shot, the autopsy is complete. His body is returned to his casket, mostly. His brain has been removed and placed in a stainless steel container to be stored by the Secret Service and preserved for posterity. But by 1966, the brain will go missing. To some conspiracy theorists, it's the sign of a cover-up. Perhaps study of the brain could prove the existence of a second gunman, or that the shooter was positioned on the so-called grassy knoll. Other scholars have claimed that the brain was confiscated by Bobby Kennedy to prevent it from becoming an object of morbid fascination. An official investigation into the brain's disappearance was inconclusive. It remains missing to this day. It's early in the morning when Jackie finally leaves the hospital to return to the White House. She and Bobby climb in the back of the ambulance, squeezing next to the large mahogany casket selected by Ken O'Donnell and Dave Powers. The doors close, and they settle in for the 35-minute drive back to the White House, a parade of vehicles following behind. The motorcade pulls onto Pennsylvania Avenue at 4.35 a.m. It's a cold morning in Washington, D.C., but hundreds of people line the street, bundled in coats and hats, to say farewell to the president as he arrives at the White House for the last time. There are beautiful pots of flames that light the way of the driveway up to the White House itself. The crowd is quiet, but Jackie feels their eyes on her as she steps out of the ambulance, still wearing the pink suit she'd put on almost 24 hours earlier. It was a fine ensemble for the weather in Dallas. But here, in the small hours of an East Coast November morning, she's chilled. I can still remember as a seven-year-old seeing that night when she appeared on the television screen at Andrews Air Force Base, and I have two older brothers, and my parents were there, and we gasped, and that was in black and white. But to see her blood-stained skirt, and for me as a little girl, knowing my mother wore hosiery, to see the streaks of blood on her legs on her hosiery, I'll never forget that. A unit of Marines stands at attention by the Northwest Gate, a farewell to their fallen commander. The portico has been draped with black. Jackie watches as the Marines lift the casket and begin a solemn procession through the White House lobby and into the East Room. I can't comprehend it myself uh, to have left two days before, barely two days before, to go off to this, what they thought would be a triumphant political visit to Texas and then to come back for what they thought would be two joyous birthdays with their two young children, and the next week was Thanksgiving, and to leave with a vibrant 46-year-old, stunningly handsome husband, and to think that her husband was now confined, lifeless to this coffin. The East Room is where she and Jack had invited countless artists to perform ballet, opera, Shakespeare, chamber music during their administration. Beautiful memories of song and laughter, now stifled by tragedy. Surrounded by family, she watches as the honor guard drapes the casket in an American flag and lifts it onto a large wooden pedestal covered with black fabric. A priest delivers a few words. For the next 24 hours, President Kennedy's casket will rest here, 
protected by a round-the-clock guard. Suddenly, finally, a wave of fatigue washes over her. So imagine what that was like once in her her bedroom in the residence upstairs, knowing her children are sleeping just a few feet away, and peeling off the blood-stained suit and her blood-stained hosiery. She had asked her mother and stepfather to stay in the president's room. They did have separate bedrooms, and sometimes they slept together, and sometimes they didn't. And she was gone a lot from the White House, uh, so they maintained separate bedrooms. But she didn't want that bedroom of her husband's to be empty, so she asked her mother and stepfather to be there. Exhausted, she returns to her private quarters to try to find some sleep. Even with some powerful tranquilizers, Jackie gets very little rest. Just a few hours after returning to the White House, she's awake again. She not only has to face this house without her husband, his bedroom without him, her fatherless children, but she has to immediately start planning um, for the actual funeral and then to think that the next day will be the funeral mass and then the burial at Arlington. John Jr. and Caroline enter Jackie's room to greet her. It's the first time she's seen her children since she left for Dallas. She helps them compose farewell letters to their father. John Jr. is a toddler, not yet able to read and write, but Jackie watches as he carefully scribbles a note. Caroline employs her best penmanship, writing two lines to her daddy. She writes that she loves him and already misses him. Jackie writes her own letter. It begins, My darling Jack. Through all their difficulties, his wandering eye, the loss of Patrick and Arabella, she loves her husband. She wants to remember his best qualities and their happiest moments. She slips the letter in an envelope and seals it, its content secret to the living world. She gathers a few of Jack's most cherished possessions, his gold cufflings, a present from her for their first anniversary, and Bobby's PT boat tie pin. She hasn't seen her husband's body since it lay on an operating table at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, a moment that seems like a thousand years ago. So far, she's been spared the sight of his reconstructed face, waxen and made up. But now she and Bobby reunite outside of the East Room for a private communion with Jack. The guards let them in. Secret Service agents lift the lid from the casket. Seeing Jack's face, so strange and yet so familiar, Jackie squeezes Bobby's hand and begins to sob. So does he. They stand there together, consumed in grief. Just yesterday, they had been planning a second presidential campaign, Christmas decorations, and summer trips to Cape Cod. Secret Service agent Clint Hill stands nearby. Jackie turns around to face him. Her cheeks are stained with tears. She asked Mr. Hill, her Secret Service agent, to procure a scissors for her. So he went to J.B. West, the usher of the White House, and procured a scissors, and she made two cuttings from her husband's uh, hair that she would keep. She gave one to Bobby, and she kept one in a frame for herself. Like Jackie, Bobby has also brought with him some personal mementos. Together, they place the items and the three letters Jackie and the kids had written into Jack's casket.
At 10 a.m., they're joined by 75 friends and family members for a private mass, likely the first Catholic mass to ever be held in the White House. Yesterday, she called her friend, artist William Walton, for help with arranging Jack's viewing. She told him specifically to consult sketches, photographs, whatever surviving documentation there was that described Abraham Lincoln's state funeral. Lincoln had also lain in repose in the East Room after his assassination. She wants Jack's viewing to be just the same. Part of it was her, I think, innate interest in history. But I think the other part was personal and political, that here this most senseless act of murdering the president in cold blood in the streets of the United States and truncating his presidency and leaving her two beautiful children fatherless and she a widow at 34, I think she wanted to insert meaning for herself, her family, the United States, and for history to compare Lincoln's martyrdom now to what she thought was her husband's martyrdom. For those who knew Jackie, It wasn't surprising that she would look to the past to plan her husband's funeral. As First Lady, she had dedicated herself to reviving a public interest in the art and history of the White House. It's really an 18th century house. It was designed in 1792 by James Hoban, who was an Irishman. This wasn't a new interest for her. As a young woman, she studied history in college at Vassar and then abroad in Paris. Later, when her husband was a senator, Jackie enrolled in history classes. They lived in Georgetown, so she just walked down the street to Georgetown University and studied American history with professors there. Through her studies, Jackie developed a keen understanding of the nation's history, of American heroes and symbolism. In the hours following Jack's assassination, her thoughts keep coming back to Lincoln. Through the lens of history, there was much the two men had in common. Both Lincoln and Kennedy had challenged the nation and split their parties with their policies on race. Lincoln, through the abolition of slavery, and now Kennedy, with his advocacy of the Civil Rights Act. Both men were celebrated for their oratory, their ability to visualize a brighter future for America. But both were tragically killed before they could see that future come to life. Now, as Jackie, Bobby, and a small crowd of family and friends grieve, the East Room has been transformed. A crew had worked for hours to replicate the decor as it was when Lincoln was assassinated, almost exactly 100 years earlier. The chandeliers are draped with black fabric, and so are the windows. On the edges of the room, there are kneeling pews reserved for prayer. But the ceremonies will have one big difference. Where President Lincoln had an open casket, Jack Kennedy will not. The undertakers had done as good a job as they could, but the wounds of the president were such that it would not look like him and it would be traumatic to the country and to the family and to his friends and advisors to have an open casket. So the decision was taken to keep it closed. A priest delivers the mass. At 11 a.m., Johnson and other members of the administration begin to trickle in to pay their respects. Tomorrow, Kennedy's body will lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jackie asked the Secret Service to take Caroline and John Jr. out for the day. They've clearly been upset by the mass, and she's hoping the agents will be able to distract them from the heavy mood at home. Here's Secret Service agent Clint Hill. She was insistent on certain things. Uh, With the children, she was insistent on they be treated like any other child would be treated. We all agreed that uh, they're never going to grow up just like normal children. After all, they are the son and the daughter of the President of the United States, and that makes a big difference. The agents take the children to have lunch at their grandmother's house. From there, they go to the lounge at National Airport to watch airplanes take off. With the children gone, Jackie has time to make plans for the funeral, already scheduled for November 25th. President Johnson has declared a national day of mourning. With the instructions of Mrs. Kennedy to follow as best they can uh, every element of the Lincoln funeral and all of the respects that were paid to him after his assassination, her staff and certainly the president's staff led by Arthur Schlesinger, Sergeant Shriver, Bill Walton, the artist, and Richard Goodwin, speechwriter for the president, they all engage uh, in this activity and begin to plan the funeral that will be held on Monday. But she also has to pack. The White House isn't her home anymore. The Oval Office now belongs to President Johnson. And so she must take inventory and make note of items that belong to the family. When she enters the West Wing, workers are already busy packing some of President Kennedy's records. Passing through the Oval Office, the floor catches her eye. She had arranged for a new red carpet to be installed while they were away in Dallas. It's her first time seeing it now, but Jack's not here to appreciate how it brightens up the room. She runs her hand over her husband's rocking chair. It was his favorite, the only one that could soothe his aching back. In fact, he loved it so much that he had collected at least 14 identical models so he could have one wherever he went. In his bedroom, in Hyannis Port, even aboard Air Force One. The press had dubbed it the most famous chair in America. Clint Hill watches the First Lady as she drifts from the chair over to the massive oak desk in front of the oval bay windows. The resolute desk, as it is known, was fashioned from the timbers of a British merchant ship and given to President Rutherford B. Hayes by Queen Victoria. But it had never been used in the Oval Office until Jackie had discovered it in a side room. Jack would sit there for hours, working while Caroline and John Jr. played hide-and-seek between his feet. Sometimes the president would slip John a stick of gum. Jackie had forbidden John from chewing gum anywhere in the White House. Under the resolute desk, with his father keeping lookout, 
John was allowed to enjoy a treat without his mother's knowledge. The Resolute had served another secret purpose. The president had installed a recording system inside the desk. A hidden microphone allowed him to secretly record meetings just in case he needed to refer to them later. Remember when we found that desk, Mr. Hill, Jackie murmurs? The president so loved that desk. It was surely a disappointment to Jackie when President Johnson removed the Resolute and replaced it with the standard-issued desk he had used as a senator. 12 p.m. Jackie returns to the private residence, just in time for a visit from Lady Bird and President Johnson. Jackie opens her mouth, ready to promise that she'll move out of the White House as soon as possible. But Johnson cuts her off. Honey, you stay as long as you want. Johnson assures her there's no rush. He has his own comfortable residence, and she's the one who just lost her husband. She nods graciously, accepting the offer. It's a relief. This building, which she herself has thought of as a national historic symbol, has become her home, and it has also become Caroline's school. She had a little nursery school that her mother had set up for her in the White House, um, but her playmates came there to the nursery school with her. The Johnsons offer their final well wishes before excusing themselves, and Jackie is left with a major decision to make. Where to bury her husband? Jack's family wants him to be buried outside of Boston, in Brookline. The town cemetery is home to the Kennedy family plot, the final resting place of Patrick and their stillborn daughter, Arabella. Jackie hesitates. Her husband is a Kennedy, yes, but he is also a president. His death is a tragedy shared by the entire nation. Jack should be buried in a place that signals his importance to all Americans and to history. Jackie asks the Secret Service to take her to Arlington National Cemetery. She strolls through the rows and rows of small white gravestones neatly arranged on the expansive fields. She finds a spot overlooking the Potomac River and the National Mall, including the U.S. Capitol, for Jack's final resting place. Jackie will later have Patrick and Arabella disinterred and reburied alongside their father. And though she would marry again in the years to follow, she too would be buried alongside him after her death in 1994. Tomorrow, on Sunday the 24th, Jackie and Caroline will go to visit Jack's body as it lies in state. Mrs. Kennedy begins the long hours of her public grief with the courageous dignity that has marked each moment of her ordeal. Caroline and John seem to mirror their mother's poise. With President Johnson and Robert Kennedy, she is in the van of the mourners who will pay their respects in the historic rotunda of the Capitol. One next to the other, they'll kneel. Jackie will plant a gentle kiss on the casket. The moment is caught on film immortalized in black and white. Mrs. Kennedy comes forward with Caroline in a tableau that calls for no words. Its poignancy calls only for tears. It's a terribly moving gesture for people across the country. A wife mourning her husband, 
a daughter who has just lost her father, a family steeped in wealth and power literally brought to their knees. To so many, Jackie's heartbreak is like that of a friend, so visible and real. At just 34 years old, Jackie Kennedy is a widow, tasked with raising her two young children alone. She'll move away from the White House and out of public life. Despite many invitations, it will be years before she returns again. The memories of her time there and the life that was taken are just too painful. A little over a week after the assassination, Jackie and her children travel to Hyannisport for the Thanksgiving holiday. It's an opportunity to get some space from Washington and spend time with the grieving Kennedy family. While she's there, she invites an old friend to visit. She invites Theodore White, the great journalist and columnist and author, uh, who had written a book called The Making of the President, 1960, and he covered the campaigns of Kennedy and Nixon, and, and Jack Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy liked him and trusted him. On this occasion, White is writing a story for Life magazine, an epilogue for the fallen president. And once he got there, Mrs. Kennedy spelled out in, again, gruesome terms what had happened in the motorcade in Dallas. But she also created this image for all of history that sticks to this day, and that is the famous reference to Camelot, which in and of itself is a mythology of the legendary King Arthur in England. Camelot. Besides being a legendary tale, the story had been adapted into a hit Broadway musical. The lyrics have been written by Jack Kennedy's old Harvard classmate, Alan J. Lerner. Jack loved the soundtrack to Camelot so much that he and Jackie would listen to it at night before going to bed. He loved the theme of Camelot, and he specifically liked the line, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment known as Camelot. And she said, there'll be other presidents again, but there'll never be another Camelot. So what Mrs. Kennedy did was take this very striking imagery of the Camelot mythology, layered another mythology over it, and applied it to her husband's presidency. It was perhaps Jackie's final gift to her husband and the most powerful. Jack Kennedy had been a complicated man, unfaithful, flawed, plagued by ill health. But with this interview coming just days after Jack's passing, Jackie ensures that his legacy is not about his struggles or his failures. It's defined by the ideals, the dream that he represented. And what I say is even though it's a mythology, the concept of one brief shining moment known as Camelot, the truth is they had a brief time in the White House, a little over a thousand days, and it was shining. It was a shining time of hope. And they were literally effervescent people to look at them and to see how they appeared as a beautiful woman and a handsome man and the way they dressed. They were a shining couple. Decades later, this is the image of the Kennedys that many Americans still hold in their mind. Shining, noble, idealistic, and then cruelly taken apart by senseless tragedy. Next time in our season finale, 
the nation says goodbye to President Kennedy. And we'll look to the future to understand how his assassination will impact the course of American politics. What will the rise of Lyndon Johnson mean for JFK's progressive agenda? For the burgeoning war in Vietnam? How will Bobby Kennedy, Johnson's bitter rival, challenge him for ownership of JFK's legacy? And how will the battle over that legacy permanently divide the Democratic Party? That's coming up on 24 Hours After. Thanks for listening to 24 Hours After, a History Channel original produced by Awfully Nice and hosted by me, Steve Gillen. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, Clint Hill and Barbara Perry. 24 Hours After is written and produced by Jesse Burton and Jane Ackerman. Editing and sound design by Bang Audio Post. Our project manager is Kadi Kamakate. Our supervising producers are McKamey Lynn and Ben Dixon. Our executive producers are Jesse Burton, Katie Hodges, Jesse Katz, and me, Steve Gillen. Special thanks to The Cutting Room and Haga Studios. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review 24 Hours After wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.